Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. Today we're going to talk about a woman, a caught, condemned, and rescued woman. A woman that was changed by the grace of God, changed by Jesus Christ. Many of you will know this story as the woman caught in adultery. And that's what we're going to look at today. In John's gospel, which is the fourth gospel, if you're a Bible person and you want to follow on in your, in your Bible, that'd be the fourth book in the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way back into the Bible. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to be in John's gospel. We're going to be in the eighth chapter. And we're going to look at verses 2 through 11. But before we do, I have to give you a little bit of background because I think it's important. The first thing I want you to know is that many scholars don't think John chapter 7, verse 53, through John chapter 8, verse 11, should be included in the Bible. That particular section of Scripture is not in many of the oldest manuscripts. Manuscripts are the copies of the New Testament that we have. And so this story of the woman caught in adultery isn't even in many of the oldest versions of the New Testament that we have. In some other writings, it actually appears in the Gospel of Luke. And so there's been debate for literally centuries whether or not this should be considered inspired Bible, inspired Word of God, whether or not it measures up to the standard of Scripture. And in fact, if you take your Bibles out right now and you look down, you'll notice that those section, that section of Scripture is bracketed and right down in the margin it will say something along the lines of not in the oldest manuscripts, MSS, not in those. And so I think it's important for you to understand that, that in some cases, people don't consider this to actually be in Scripture. Now, there's a lot of other scholars that argue with that because they say that it's true to the spirit of Scripture everywhere else. Everywhere else we see Jesus, these are the kinds of things he did and was doing. Now, they do point out many times that John 8 doesn't sound like the language of John. It sounds more like the language of Luke and probably fits in Luke. But there's debate. But what, what almost every scholar agrees with is that it has the ring of inspiration to it. Most of them say, you know, we don't really understand where it came from and we're not really sure if it was in the original, but it sure does look like Jesus and it sure does confirm what we see throughout the rest of the Gospels. So I think it's important for you as students of Scripture to understand the background and to understand this particular text and its history. But I want to tell you that I believe it's the inspired word of God. And the reason that I do is because it looks like everything else that Jesus did in the New Testament, in the book, in the Gospels. Amen? So with that said, we're going to read John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. And another thing I want to share with you as kind of a backdrop is I want you to remember this. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Bible has to say. In John 1.1, it says this of Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things that were made were made by Him. And then in verse 14, it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. So we know this about Jesus. Jesus is the word that's a Greek word that means the story, the explanation of God. 
Okay, so he's the full story. So when we look at the Bible, when we start in Genesis and we go all the way through the Old Testament to, as we would look at it, the book of Malachi, or as some say the Italian prophet Malachi, as we look at that, one of the things that we see is that all of it was foreshadowing one who was to come. And Jesus is the full embodiment and the fulfillment of all that the Bible teaches. All the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. And so when we look back through him, we see the Bible differently now because we're looking at him. And and here's the thing. If you want to know what God is like, the clearest picture we have of God's character and nature is to look at Jesus Christ. For he said of himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you want to know what God is like and you want the perfect explanation of God's character and nature, you start by looking at Jesus Christ. And it's through him that you interpret the rest of Scripture. Amen? Y'all with me? Now, I think that's important because where we're going to go right now, we're going to see something about God's nature and character that's beautiful and powerful and life-changing. So let's start in verse 2 of chapter 8 of John. At dawn he went to the temple again. I like that, at dawn. And all the people were coming to him. May it be again, Lord, in our hour. And he sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you, you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again, And continued writing on the ground. And when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman at the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Is that a powerful story or what? So I want to break this down for you today in terms of a a courtroom scene. And I want you to see that that's truly what it is. And I want to start with the prosecution. The prosecution brings their charges. And who are the prosecution? The prosecution are two groups of people, one group called the scribes and one group called the Pharisees. Let's define them. Who are the scribes? The scribes were those who transcribed the law. That would be the first five books of the Bible, Torah, the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses. They transcribed the law and the rest of the Old Testament. That is, they sat down painstakingly with copies of the Hebrew Scripture, and as they spoke out, literally spoke out every letter, every jot, every tittle, they copied the Scripture from copy to copy to copy. So they would, and, and they had others around them, and as they spoke it, they each held each other accountable to make sure that they recorded it accurately. That's what a scribe did. 
They also were the teachers of the law. They interpreted it. They added to it. Unfortunately, not only did they write down the scripture and interpret it, but over the centuries leading up to the time of Jesus, they'd begun to add a whole lot of other requirements to the law. So that by the time that Jesus came on the scene and the scripture says, you shall keep the Sabbath holy, they had built around the idea of keeping the Sabbath holy so many rules and regulations that you could barely move within your own home for fear of breaking the law. Sounds familiar. And then there were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a strict sect of Judaism that prided itself on being pure, separate, and the true interpreters of the law of Moses. The very word Pharisee means the separate ones, the pure ones the ones that were better than everybody else. And that's really the way they saw each other. They saw themselves as being superior to the society they were in and superior over every other religious sect. It seems that more than any other group, the Pharisees clashed with Jesus. They had become so legalistic and strict that they missed God's heart and the very Messiah that they had prayed and waited for. Now, I want you to wrap your head around something with me that's just profound. The idea that it's possible to know the Bible inside and out, to follow it, to be able to quote it and memorize it, to be full of the word of God and yet not even know the author of the book. It's possible to know the Bible and not know God. And there's a lot of people like that even today. Things have not changed. Just because somebody comes at you quoting scripture doesn't mean they know the author of scripture. Because the author has a character and a nature about him. He's a person. And there's an underlying spirit that goes with scripture that is from the author. And ultimately the author and the one written about is Jesus. And so if we want to understand scripture, we must look at scripture through the person of Jesus Christ. So just imagine this. You've waited your, you've spent your whole life studying the Bible. You've spent your whole life interpreting it correctly. You've spent your whole life being, being considered the purest and the strictest and the best of all the religious people around you. And on the stage walks the embodiment of everything you've studied, except he's wrapped in a body. God in a bod, right? God enfleshed. And God in flesh walks into the midst of you and instead of being able to recognize him, you miss him and in, in, in fact, you want to kill him. And you ultimately do. That's what was going on with the religious system of Jesus' day. They knew the word, but they didn't know the word. Right? And then in this story, there's the accused. A woman caught in the act of of adultery, but I'm going to tell you, there's more than just this woman that's on trial, and we'll see that. But Jesus is also on trial. So she was caught in the very act. Many scholars think she was caught in the act the night before and was held to be, because remember, it's early in the morning. They're just at the temple. Jesus is teaching, and they bring this woman in. So they've likely been holding her all night, and they're using her as a trap for Jesus. 
These men cared nothing about this woman, her dignity, her personhood. They cared nothing about the value of her as an intrinsic, her intrinsic value as a human being. They only cared to use her as a pond and an object in order to make their case and trap Jesus. That's pretty evil. They brought her and they made her stand in the center. She's surrounded by condemning men and Jesus. What a contrast. We have condemning men over here and we have Jesus and she's in the center and all eyes are on her. She's been completely shamed and exposed. And the question is, how was she caught? Were there spies? Was this a setup for an object lesson? See, they don't care about her. I mean, what kind of pervs were these guys? Seriously, how do you catch somebody in the very act? You got somebody peeking through windows? Was this set up? Did they maybe send a man purposely to bring her into this position so they could entrap her? We don't know. That's speculation. But I'm going to tell you something. There's evil afoot here. Something stinks in Denmark. Sorry, Denmark. (laughs) And then they say this. The law of Moses commands us to stone her. I'll show it to you. Deuteronomy 22, 22 says this. If a man is discovered having sexual relations with another man's wife, both the man who had sex with the woman and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. So the law of Moses tells us stone both of them. Wait, stone both of them. Wait, is there a missing person here? We have a missing person case. Where's the dude? Have you noticed that? This man is in present because these guys were all, honestly, they were all a bunch of misogynists. And quite possibly it set this woman up to be a pawn. Well, we know they'd set him up, her up to be a pawn and an object to entrap Jesus. I mean, check it out. In that culture, just to kind of make the point, women couldn't even come and be a witness at a trial. They had no voice. At that time, the rabbis had come up with this intricate system that made it really easy to divorce your wife. So when these, uh, these leaders and these people got tired of their wife and they wanted a new model, I'm sorry to say it so crassly, but that's exactly what was happening culturally. If uh, she made a meal they didn't like, or if she quit looking good to the eyes, that was all they needed to write a certificate of divorce and put her out of the house. And they justified it. They said, well, Moses said we could write a certificate of divorce, so it must be okay. So we'll come up with whatever we can come up with to do that, and that's what they did. And so they would write certificates of divorce, and we have this recorded in ancient history that they, if their wife burned their food, she's out. If she didn't perform the way that they wanted them to, she's out. If she, didn't, if she woke up one day and didn't look the way they wanted them to, she's out. Now, here's the problem. That culture wasn't like our culture. Women couldn't go out and get a degree. They couldn't go get a job. They couldn't do anything but what? Be a prostitute. That was literally the only way that a woman could care for her family in the ancient world. Couldn't have inheritances most of the time. And so you can see the whole system was stacked against women. And in this case, there's no recourse. And so this religious system, think about it. Think about how evil this is at the time. By the time Jesus came on the scene, they would stand and say, prostitutes, 
and adulteresses should be damned and you're put out of the synagogue and you have no place in the community and we cast you out. But hey, um, you can't work anywhere. You can't take care of your family. And if you do anything to displease your husband, he can just put you out. And that's what was happening. That's the background to what was happening culturally at the time. Not very nice, is it? It's not quite as bad as what they did recently in China. Listen to this. A high school ethics textbook published by the Chinese government includes a revised version of John chapter 8, verses 3 through 11. In the Christian version, Jesus is presented with a woman caught in adultery, and he says, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. In the communist revision, this is actually true. This is taken from CT Magazine Gleanings. It says this. In the communist revision, however, Jesus says that the law has to be enforced and picks up stones to kill the woman himself. Right? That's pretty bad too, isn't it? That kind of fits with their government and what they do to people. But that's getting me off task here, (laughs) off focus. Think about this. This is a, a stacked system. This woman has no chance The odds are against her. And yet, then the defense steps up. Or I should say, the defense and the judge. Jesus, the defender. Jesus, the judge, steps into the gap, as he always does. And they turn to him and they say, what do you say, Jesus? And of course, they did this to trap him. Now, again, all these men, or at least many of these men, were likely guilty of many secret sins, including the very sin they were accusing the woman of. They don't care about the man or the woman involved. They're just trying to trap or accuse Jesus. And the New King James Study Bible says this, if Jesus had not, had Jesus, if Jesus had not, had said not to stone her, he would have contradicted Jewish law. If he had said to stone her, he would have run counter to Roman law, which did not permit Jews to carry out their own execution. So Jewish law gave them the ability to execute people for a certain number of crimes. And yet at that time, because they were under Roman rule, they couldn't kill people. That's why Jesus had to be tried before Pilate and Herod. He had to go before the government authorities. And ultimately, Pilate had to say, let him be crucified. I'm washing my hands of it. Because if Pilate had not have said that, Jesus could not have been crucified. So the power of the state had to back them. They had no authority to do that on their own. Okay, so Jesus is there and... He stoops down and he writes on the ground. I love his answer. Do do you get the picture? I I love the picture because these guys, you know, you you could just imagine it. They're kind of frothing at the mouth. Yeah, we got him. We're going to get him. They were always trying to do this to him. We finally got a trap he can't get out of. And in the middle of it, Jesus kind of kneels down and starts writing on the ground. And, And the text doesn't tell us what he's writing. And then he stands up, and by the way, he wasn't doodling, and it must be important because it's in the scripture. He stands up from his writing on the ground, and he says, whoever of you is without sin, be the first to throw the stone. Now, let's be clear about something. A lot of times we read this text wrongly. Jesus isn't talking about any sin. By the way, I'm just going to pop some of your bubbles right now. I'll hear people say sometimes, all sin is the same in the Bible. That's not true. It's absolutely not true. 
All sin comes from the same root system. It's all ultimately the rejection of God and rebellion to God. But there are degrees of sin in the Bible. There are places, there are sins that lead to death. The ultimate sin, which is to reject Jesus Christ, is the ultimate sin, right? That is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, by the way, ultimate falling away from the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. But every other sin is forgivable, but there are degrees of sin. And that's a very clear thing in the scripture. So what Jesus, when Jesus turns to them and says, he who is without sin, cast the first stone, he's not talking about generally sin because everybody's sinned and he knew that. Everybody there is sinned. He's not saying, listen, if you got mad at your wife this morning and yelled at her, if you, you, know, if you cheated on your taxes or whatever, he, he's not saying that. He's saying, he who is without the same kind of sin cast the first stone. Some of you are being doubtful right now. Listen to Constable's notes. He says this, Jesus did not mean that the accusers needed to be sinless. The law does not require that. And this is how we know. The law required, the law did not require that, but that, that they be innocent of the particular sin of the accused. Jesus meant that they needed to be free from the sin of adultery or at least free of complicity in prearranging this woman's adultery. So when Jesus says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone, he's not just saying any kind of general sin. He's saying, listen, if you are pure, because in the law, the only way you could stone the person, you could be a part of killing that person or, or bringing them to a point of execution is you had to be innocent of the very thing you were accusing them of. And so Jesus is saying, if you've never done what they've done, go ahead and throw. And it's really interesting. Then... After he says that, he stoops back down. He starts writing again. And you know what I think he was writing? All speculation, all interpretation, but it fits. I think he was writing their sins. I think he was going to the Old Testament law and writing specific commandments about sexual immorality, about adultery, about being unfaithful to your spouse. I think he was going to the book of Malachi and talking about God hates divorce and especially those of you who sin against the wife of your youth. And, you know, I think he was writing those things out. And as they're standing there and they're looking at the dirt and they're listening to him and they're looking at the dirt and they're listening to him, conviction overcomes them. And now they're like, oh, wow, what do we do? See, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew beyond what they were saying. Let me illustrate this. We see in another place in Luke chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, it says the scribes and the Pharisees, those two same groups of people, were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. You see, these people had become so hard of heart and so cold would they, that they not only would go and spy upon and entrap a woman in adultery to bring her out and publicly expose her, but they were so hard of heart that they missed a miracle of people being healed on the Sabbath. And you see this over and over in the Gospels. This is the Sabbath day and Jesus is in the synagogue or he's out in the community and somebody comes to him and they're sick or they, they have, you know, they're lame or their hand is shriveled up or they, they, they're, they're, you know, demon oppressed and Jesus turns to them and they're angry with him. Go ahead, I dare you, heal him on the Sabbath because to them, 
Remember I said earlier they'd added a whole lot of things to the Sabbath laws? Well, to them, even healing a person was considered work. One time he turns to him and he says, listen, doesn't the Sabbath law permit you that if one of your animals falls into a ditch, you can go down in the ditch and get it out of the animal? Isn't this woman worth a lot more than an animal? But they didn't see it. They were so hard and so cold. They missed the heart of God. By the way, there's a warning in here for all of us. Are you catching the warning? Hello? Church? See, the longer you walk with God and the more religious you become and the longer you're in the church and, you know, slowly over time you start thinking that you're better than other people, that you're morally and ethically superior and that without realizing it, you begin to drink. Or as Jesus said, you begin to eat from the bread of the Pharisees. You start to take the leaven of the Pharisees into your life and before you know it, you believe you're morally and ethically superior to other people around you and you set yourself up as judge, jury, and executor and you decide who should go down and who's evil and who's bad and who's on the outside and Jesus is warning us that that is the sickest a person can be. When people come to that point to where their heart is hard and cold and they're not open to grace and to mercy and love for them and for others, they're close to being lost. Jerry Cook in Leadership Magazine said this, Jesus never attacked the sinner. He simply said, I forgive you. Meanwhile, he attacked the self-righteous with a vengeance because they knew that until they, he knew that until they felt guilty, they couldn't be forgiven. Do you know that when Jesus went after the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew 23, when he goes through an entire chapter saying, woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, you clean the outside of the tomb, but the inside is full of dead man's bones. And he goes on and he goes on and he goes on with seven woes as he's preaching those seven woes to them. I can imagine he's doing it through tears. He's appealing to them. I don't want you to be lost. I don't want your hard heart to keep me out. Repent of your evil ways of setting yourself up as God. Stop it. Many of them didn't. We know they perished within a generation in the destruction of Jerusalem. Many of them died in their sins because they refused to turn to the grace and mercy and love of God. So what's the final verdict? The final verdict is that the accused and the accusers face the judge. They dropped their stones and left one by one. When I read that now, do you know what I see? Hope. Hope for the Pharisees. Hope for the scribes. Because they knew. I mean, they couldn't have stoned her anyway. They would have been arrested by the Romans. But they also recognized Oh, he's got us. And that happened over and over with Jesus. They tried to trap him and he trapped him in their own trap. They left one by one from the oldest to the youngest. Why the oldest to the youngest? Because older people know their stuff better than younger people. Right? They know how needy they are, hopefully. Right? They would not have walked away for general sins, but for sins that were similar in nature to what they wanted the woman condemned for. Many of them were probably serial adulterers, one right after the other. They divorced their wives for frivolous reasons so they could get a newer, younger, more physically pleasing model, and now they were getting called on the carpet for it. The Bible Exposition Commentary says this, we must not 
misinterpret this event to mean that Jesus was easy on sin or that he contradicted the law. For Jesus to forgive this woman meant that he had to one day die for her sins. Forgiveness is free, but it isn't cheap. Many times I'll hear people say, yeah, well, he was without sin, throw the first stone. And they'll kind of use this text of scripture to say, I can do whatever I want to do and it's all okay, God understands. That's not the point of the text at all. In fact, the point of the text is that sin is horribly sinful and terrible and destructive and will damn us in the end if we don't flee to a savior. But hardness of heart is the worst of all. Coldness of heart. A Pharisee spirit is worse than all of it. And then Jesus is left alone with a sexually shamed woman. And we see in that Jesus is safe. She's in the safest place she's ever been with one who loves her and will not condemn her. And then he says to her, he turns to her, and I love this, where are those who condemn you? These men had set a trap for Jesus to condemn him. They'd set a trap for this woman to use her and condemn her. In the end, Jesus turned their words and actions back on them and uses their own sin to condemn them and they can only walk away. Wow. And she says, no one condemns me, Lord. Can you imagine? One minute, think about it. Think about the shock of this woman. One minute, surrounded by men. And they're looking at Jesus. They're looking at her. You can imagine through their eyes, they're saying, filthy whore, loser. Gross, you're dirty and common everyday vernacular, skanky. Think about it, the kind of terms they would use. And the next minute, she's looking around, and there's no one except Jesus. Wow. No one condemns me, Lord. And she calls him Lord. She recognized him. At that moment, she saw who he was. The word Lord is a Greek word that is used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, to speak of God. She turns to him and says, no one's condemning me, Lord. And she recognizes at that moment that he's master and Lord. And he says this, neither do I condemn you. Now, if there's anybody in the room or in the dirt that has the power, that has the right, that has the authority to condemn her, it's Jesus. Jesus alone had that. Right then and there, he could have said, you are an adulteress. The law says you should be stoned to death. I can't stone you to death, but you're going to stand before me, and I condemn you, and he does not condemn her. He says, neither do I condemn you. In Constable's notes, it says this again. Without prosecutors, Jesus dismissed the case. This was his prerogative as her judge. He only issued her a warning. She would have to stand before him again in the future, but this was not the time that he wanted to pass judgment on her. He gave her mercy and time to change her ways. Thus, he was not easy on her sin. The ultimate reason he could exempt her from condemnation is that he would take her condemnation on himself and die in her place on the cross. Powerful. And then he says this, go and from now on, do not sin anymore. Now, I'm almost done here, but I, I want to, I want to look at this text because I think it's really important for us to hear this. I hear people all the time when they talk about this story, and, and it's funny, many times they're kind of Pharisee type. They go right to that. Yeah, but Jesus did tell her, go and sin no more. Wait, 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 wait. Is that all you got out of that story? 
Stay with me. Is that all you got out of that story? Go and sin no more? What about all the stuff before it? Neither do I condemn you. Where are your accusers? He who's without sin, throw the first stone. What about all of that? Is that all you got? Are you fixating on the fact that Jesus told her to stop doing what she's doing? Yes, he did, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that he's redeeming her. He's forgiving her. He's loving her. He's healing her. And her ability to not sin is because she's been loved and forgiven. Because I'm going to tell you something. Shaming people and guilting people and making people feel bad over and over and over again for their failures never changes them. Romans and Hebrews tell us that the law is powerless to cause us to quit sinning. Beating people up, telling them over and over again, I'm done with you. You won't stop, I'm done with you. Shame, like, well, I'm just gonna shame them a little bit more, and if I shame them long enough, maybe they'll wake up and they'll come to themselves. No, shame is powerless to change people. But I'll tell you what will change people. Grace, love, mercy. Yeah, you blew it, but I love you. I forgive you. Your family, come home. That changes people. Amen? See, Jesus knows that she will sin. When he says, go and don't sin anymore, he's not saying, listen, he's not saying, listen, when you leave here, when you leave here, I'm expecting perfection. He's not saying that. He's being, again, specific about her sin. He's saying, go and don't do what you were doing anymore. Break off the relationship. Quit doing that stuff. It's going to destroy you. It's going to hurt you. I just want you to stop doing that. And here's why I think she changed. First of all, she was with Jesus. She was facing Jesus. And when Jesus forgave her and loved her, it wasn't just words. When he says, go and sin no more, do you know one of the real powerful things about Jesus is that when the word made flesh speaks the words themselves carry a grace and a power inside of them and they hit you and they go into you and they bring forth the change inside of you that he declares. He spoke the change into her. Changed her life right there on the spot. The love, forgiveness, and the command carry the power to transform her life. We never hear of her again in scripture, but we must assume that she was never the same again. Because when God loves you, forgives you and commands you to change you change amen anybody in this room you can say when God loved me forgave me and commanded me to change I've changed you're not perfect you still got a ways to go but something has happened in you right amen so here's a quick question I'm finishing right here with this with a couple of questions this is for you are you and I'm speaking to the men too are you the woman Or are you the scribes and Pharisees? Do you have shameful sin in your life that you're convinced that God could never forgive? Or do you stand in the position of a scribe or Pharisee and decide who should be condemned or who should be forgiven? Because all of us need Jesus. Seriously, who are you today? You know, one one of the things I know is true over the years is I've met a lot of people who carry hidden, shameful sin in their life. They've never told anybody. 
and they carry the weight of that all the time and they really believe I've gone beyond the pale I'm irredeemable this can't be forgiven I, this can't be touched and what I'm telling you today is it can be touched and Jesus is here to forgive you and love you and redeem you or are you the scribe or the Pharisee because if you are if you've slipped into self-righteous if you find yourself always pointing the finger at others if the problem with the world and society and your family and everything else out there is them and this is what you're always doing and your standing is the judge, the jury, and the executioner, then I'm far more concerned for you than I am in the person who's in adultery because they know what they're doing is wrong and you might think you're right. Remember the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus? He threw Christians in prisons? That's good. He threw Christians in prison. That's prisons. He threw Christians in prison, condemned them to their deaths, took all their property and he was a Pharisee did you know that he was a Pharisee he was one of the most learned men in all of Judaism knew the Bible backwards and forward would have been considered a holy man and a good man and he stood by when they threw stones at Stephen and they killed Stephen and he was given his hearty approval yeah kill the Christians kill the followers of the way isn't that amazing? A man who's a holy man could be that hard and that cold. And it happens to us too. It seeps in. Phariseeism. Beware. Beware. And the only thing you can do is repent. Quit thinking the way you've been thinking. Ask God to forgive you and turn your heart. Amen.